I love farchaeology. This modern world of science and invention is of particular interest to women. Welcome to Lady History, the good, the bad, and the ugly ladies you missed in history class. Lexi, would you have been willing to marry for access to archaeology? Absolutely. Marriage is meaningless. And Haley, what's your favorite tool? Okay, here's the thing. My paws are tiny. Trowels, pickaxes are big. So hear me out. Trowel not the kids version, because it's not sharp enough. They don't give kids sharp tools, but just like your normal trowel with silly putty, like that dries and clays, but with my grip to it. And I'm Alana, and archaeology used to be pretty cringe. Evie O'Connell, who is the archaeologist more than Rick O'Connell is the archaeologist, to be honest. So maybe archaeologist husbands? Anyway, I was having this conversation about Indiana Jones versus The Mummy, 1999 version, obviously. Obviously. And I had said that The Mummy is better because there's no, like, active looting. They're just trying to study. And also, Brendan Fraser and Rachel Weisz are so hot. Everyone in that movie is hot. This person I was having this conversation with said... Are you trying to say that Harrison Ford isn't hot? And I said, of course, Harrison Ford is hot, obviously, but he's the only hot one. So it balances out. Yeah, no, that makes sense. I'm just saying I want more men archaeologists. All of them. I said this in our regular archaeologist episode. I said that male archaeologists will tell you that and fight you on saying that archaeology real life archaeology is not indiana jones and every single one of them without fail thinks that they are indiana jones we did we did talk about this the sheer fact that every male archaeologist i have interacted with and it's more than the greater number of archaeologists most people normally interact with because obviously when you are an archaeologist you know like attracts like you see more archaeologists they always are like, adventure boy, I got a whip, I'm wearing cargo pants, it belongs in a museum, yeehaw! Um, or they have the stupid little um, leather messenger bag. That the Indiana leather messenger The bag, amount yeah. of male archaeologists use a messenger bag. And this this is like straight or gay, any sort of sexual orientation, they yeah. are all like this. Line your spine, wear a backpack, that's... No, it's not hot adventurer style. Let's see how many of these marriages does when both of them are sort of archaeologists, what happens here? Okay. Sophia Schliemann is often only known for a single photograph. And I assume that people who don't know who don't do the archaeology have no idea who she is. But if you do have any interest in archaeology or like ancient Greek culture, you may have seen a picture of her. It's an iconic image to anyone who has studied archaeology in any amount. 
in which she poses wearing jewelry, commonly referred to as Priam's treasure. Am I saying, is it Priam or Priam? I thought it was always Priam. Okay. Commonly referred, commonly referred to as Priam's treasure, excavated in Hisrilic. I cannot say these words. Hisrilic. It's Troy. It is an ancient city in Turkey that was excavated and that through excavation has been claimed to be Troy. So just say Troy, I guess. Um, I don't speak language. But Sophia was much more than the unethical model of treasured artifacts. She was a woman with many interests and talents. So today we're going to talk about her because she does deserve more than her unethical model career. Sophia was born in 1852 in Athens, Greece. Her family was wealthy with her father owning shares in the Pennsylvania Railroad. Her uncle was hired to teach Greek to the archaeologist in quotes. He's an archaeologist in name sort of only. Back then, if you had enough money to say you were an archaeologist, you got to be an archaeologist. There weren't really any, any qualifications. So yeah, her uncle was hired to teach Henrik Sleeman who later asked if his tutor knew any fine black-haired Greek women in the homework style who were single. Because that's what you ask your tutor, always. It's always what I ask my tutor. And of course, her uncle was like, oh yeah, I have a 17-year-old niece who's available. Henrik was 47. Anyway, they got married in 1869 and began their fascinating life together. In 1873, Henrik took Sophia to dig with him in Turkey at the supposed site of Troy, which is the excavation that spawned her famous photograph, as we talked about. But after being assaulted by a foreman working on the site, because remember, being a woman be danger, Sophia went home to Greece for her safety. Sophia also briefly joined in Henrik's excavation at Mycenae, though records about her participation in both digs are a little unclear, a little shady. We don't know exactly what went down. Sophia helped her husband support his assertion that the site he found in Turkey was Troy by researching and extracting clues from the text of the Iliad to serve as evidence. Though records of her specific work on the project are limited, it is clear Sophia studied and became a knowledgeable academic in the subjects of classics and archaeology to assist her husband in this endeavor. Sophia was also a socialite. Students and staff from the American School of Classical Studies at Athens often recounted events hosted by Madame Schliemann. One such party was the, quote, inaugural ball, unquote, which Sophia hosted to welcome guests to her newly constructed home in 1881. The party was attended by those Athenians of highest status, such as notable expats, prominent Greek families, and diplomats. Despite the tradition in Athens of organizing party guests by status, Sophia broke tradition for this ball and treated all her guests equally, which was apparently really revolutionary. Of course, it was still a bunch of rich people and slightly less rich rich people, not really like a diversity of income. So it's very progressive to have your rich friends and your slightly less rich, rich friends hang out apparently. During the party, Sophia led tours of the artifacts that she and her husband kept around their house, everything from ancient vases to statues. We love digging things up and keeping them in your house. Sarcasm, sarcasm, sarcasm. This tour must have been particularly engaging considering the attire she wore to give it 
a black gown, full length, and a necklace made from beads excavated from an ancient grave. Ooh, curse. Um, it really gives upcycled thrifted look a whole new meaning. Right. But yeah, she was really knowledgeable about this stuff. So she was able to give a really good tour for her guests. In an unconfirmed story, it is suggested that the day after the party, local government officials sent the Schliemans a notice to cover or remove their naked outdoor statues, which adorned the terrace of their home. Sophia had a brilliant idea. She hired seamstresses to dress the statues. Way to go, Sophia. She requested that the clothing be particularly unattractive just to annoy all of Athens as they made it away about the city enough that she would eventually get her way. Before the first afternoon of them wearing the clothes even rolled around, her husband was contacted and told to remove the clothing and restore the statues to normal, nudity and all. Way to go, Sophia. Sophia was also a mother. She and her husband had two children, Adramash and Agamemnon. I can never say this, Agamemnon. Poor Aggie boy. What a name to live with, this poor child. Apparently his nickname was Memco. I don't know why. I call him Aggie boy in my head because he deserves better. But if you don't know about the mask of Agamemnon, and I can't say that word. I've never been able to say it. Um, I've been an archaeologist for how long, can't say it. If you don't know that story, I included some resources to learn more about it and why it's so tragic that they named their son after such a thing. I mean, technically they named him after the historical legendary figure, but like his name is so intertwined with the incident of the mask that it's like not fair to this poor baby boy. Sophia's grandson says that his mother recounted many fond memories of Sophia's attempts to make their very academic home a more pleasant place for children. One such activity was picnics with Sophia hosted for her children on the floors of the many different rooms, each imagined to be a new exotic destination. Like one was supposed to be, um, one was supposed to be like an ancient temple and, you know, they each had like a different theme. And so that room became that place when they went there, if that makes sense. Family also had a few pets, including a cat named, oh my God, I'm going to butcher this, Dinjinjinati. <laughs> no clue if I'm yeah. saying that right. They rescued her from Troy, their cat. That's basically what I was getting at. Um, Sophia and Henrik found the cat at Troy and brought it home. Obsessed. Um, the original, find a cat on a dig and keep it forever. And a they had a dog named Nero, who their son found as a stray. Like Aggie boy just was like, oh, hey, a dog. And they were like, cool, bring it in the house. We'll name it Nero. So this whole family obviously had a vibe going, if you haven't noticed with the names and, and the acquiring of stray animals and everything. Like, it, listen, they were an eccentric, picture like the eccentric family. Sophia lost her husband in 1890. She was only 38 because that's what happens when you marry someone 30 years older than you. So, but her children were only 19 and 12. So it was, it was sad for the kids basically is the point. Sophia entered a period of mourning for two years. And if you're listening to this podcast, you probably know that that was pretty normal back in those times to go into mourning when you lost someone in your family, particularly your husband, child, parent. Um, so she did go into mourning for two years, but that mourning ended when her daughter was married and the family once again began to host like lavish parties for all of the elite Athenians because her daughter was entering this period of being a socialite herself. Around that time, she published her husband's autobiography, which she edited herself. So she found like a draft autobiography and 
edit it. This is very, it's, it's giving Eliza Hamilton a little bit. Um, so that's interesting. I guess women just see their husbands die and then they're like, whoo, his papers, let me make a book so I can have money. Because yes, get that cash, girl, get that paper. Sophia and her daughter also funded the construction of a sanatorium for tuberculosis sufferers in Athens, an organization for which Sophia served on the board of until her death. And like eventually that organization they started became the National Pulmonary, the, the National Pulmonary Hospital of Greece and is like the most renowned pulmonary specialist place in Greece to this day, which is kind of cool. Sophia eventually became a beloved grandmother too, spoiling her grandsons, Alex and Michael. Alex and Michael, get normal names. Um, Milos, their last name's Milos, Greek, Greek little boys. When her son-in-law died unexpectedly, relatively young, she assisted her daughter in parenting the boys. So she was a really hands-on grandma. Numerous historical fiction books use Sophia and her husband as a basis for their stories, though I have read none of them. I will never read any of them. I cannot recommend them or attest their accuracy, and I don't want to be in charge of reading and attesting to the accuracy, so don't ask. I have also included further learning about the controversy surrounding Henrik's archaeological work, which in turn does involve Sophia since she worked with him. Um, including the potential theory that Sophia's family created the Mask of Agamemnon, which Henrik claims to have excavated, because apparently she had really, really like expert gold makers in her family, in her lineage. And so it was a little sussy, you know, that they kept finding cool gold shit at the sites. Despite the controversy surrounding the excavations, many of the quote unquote discovered objects are still quote unquote discovered, still in museum collections and on view at some museums, including in Athens. So keep in mind next time you visit a museum that what you're looking at might have more of a story behind it than you think. And not all museums interpret all the possible stories. So just something to think about. Not everything is as it seems. Wizards of Lady Place moment. Everything is not what it seems. I also included some videos on her husband's career in her YouTube playlist because I didn't really talk about him. And if you want more background to kind of explain how he got to where he was when he married her and then thus what happened afterwards, um, if you're curious about that, there's some YouTube resources. Most of them are like, Henrik Schliemann, the world's worst archaeologist. Bad archaeology, Henrik Schliemann. Um, so... If you enjoy that kind of stuff, yeah. I also included Trey the Explainer's Archaeology Iceberg, which includes the Mask of Agamemnon. Check it out. It's really interesting. I think we covered all this in the intro, but Tessa Verney Wheeler is one of the archaeologists that was also married to an archaeologist, but she, plot twist, didn't necessarily get into archaeology just because of her husband. So that, that's fun fact, but I'm not going to m- dive much further than her being her husband being Sir Mortimer Wheeler, because when your bio's abstract, like your biography's abstract, has to say that your career was overshadowed by your husband in the first sentence, but you also have a whole book written about you, something smells fishy, a little stinky. And also, sadly, this is the main biography on Tessa, but I don't blame the author, Lydia C. Carr, and this was published in 2012, so pretty pretty recent book. 
I don't blame Lydia for the abstract actually because I read the book and while the abstract turned me off and this book was purely for research there was a big like difference in style of writing per se um so I'm gonna say that the abstract was written by a man but the book was written by a woman because I, I I can't I don't know there's too much of like putting Tessa down for all her accomplishments in the abstract and I left a bad feeling in my mouth because Tessa is like such a great human being and so accomplished on her own that we have to do it justice by talking about her on this podcast. And Tessa was born in South Africa, but her family moved to the UK. And we're talking about the last decade of the 1800s to early 1900s, which is a huge time for archaeologists, especially coming out of the UK. Fun, messed up, twisted age. Check out the British Museum. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. And she studied history at the University College of London. I once really wanted to go to this place and study actually kind of where she also studied. And she studied for history. She studied mainly British history, getting into archaeology. And that's where she met her husband. And it was him that got her more involved in archaeology because this is where we get into the part of the archaeologist went somewhere because he got hired. So she followed. But but, but, but they both published and excavated a ton in like the 1920s, 1930s across England. And Tessa not only organized the shindig, she made sure it's financed properly. So she, she did the ka-ching, ka-ching. And she also got down and dirty in the dirt, a multitasking queen. And part of like the research that, the, that was done later was based off of her observations of like the artifacts they found. And really, this is the jumping off propelling point from her career. Like, first off, archaeological techniques. You know, the Wheeler Kenyon method. Yeah, her paws were on that grid method. Two iconic ladies we talked about Kenyon in the past episode. I believe that was our April Fool's episode, right? Am I remembering that correctly? Yep. Alana's shaking their head. Yes, or nodding. Shaking is no. Another cool thing she also did was bringing archaeology, Roman archaeology in the UK to be specific, giving the opportunity for anyone. And when I say anyone, I'm going to still put quotes because sexism and classism were still alive and well at that point. They are still alive and well today. But for her, that meant also working and delving into the museum world, overall making trying to make archaeology and what she was studying as accessible as possible. So we give her major, major props for that. She was also elected as a fellow of the Society of Antiquities or Antiquaries. Antiquaries. I think it's Antiquities. I don't know why I'm reading that. She also started the Institute of Archaeology in London right before she passed away. Yup. This institute is the like institute at UCL College that many of our friends have gone to. It is widely prestigious, alive and well. And I'm going to be stomping my foot right now and be super mad because when you Google this institute, the quick facts on the right side of Google tribute her husband to starting it and links his wiki page. And at the very least, it was a team effort. She did die like very soon, like as it was like being produced. It like she passed away in 1936, and I believe 
it was still up and running, still in the major, not fully established yet, but like established. She was like, she still had like, she worked so hard on it. Still such a brainchild. And even UCL credits her with helping start this by after her passing from like a bunch of different compounding health complications at the age of 43, a black marble plaque was unveiled a year after her passing. And it's still like at the Institute at UCL and that like they recognize her as one of like the founding members. So I think it's bullshit that a lot of people don't recognize that later in life, even when, or don't go through the effort of mentioning her along with her husband or any other team players in this, because you cannot solely create a world renowned Institute for Archaeology overnight or by yourself. There are lots of people that play into this. And one of those team players was Tessa. Also, what kind of grinds my gears is her and her husband would consider themselves the wheelers. So always as team players and co-workers when they did something, it was never. And like even in some like archives I found, it was her husband acknowledging like, oh, they worked on it together. Like he could have taken the credit like very easily. We know it's happened before, but he even didn't take the credit just for himself. He would say like, my wife helped hugely. And that just makes me angry. So if you take anything away, know that she helped create the Institute of Archaeology that is now. Dame Agatha Christie was born September 15, 1890, a Virgo, in Devon, England. She was encouraged to write and be creative, even moving to Paris for a bit when she was 16 to study music. In 1910, Agatha visited Egypt for the first time, the way that young Brit kids kind of toured the places of British imperialism in the early 20th century. Uh, and fell in love with the archaeological wonders, saying, quote, I am very glad my mother did not take me. Luxor, Karnak, the beauties of Egypt were to come upon me with wonderful impact about 20 years later, how it would have spoiled them for me if I had seen them with unappreciative eyes. She married Colonel Archibald Christie in 1914. That is how she became Agatha Christie. They did not have the same last name. She was born Agatha Miller. She also published her first book in 1920. I'm going to skip over a lot of her early writing and her mysterious disappearance because, spoiler alert, next week we're talking about mystery writers and I will be covering that stuff then. In 1928, Agatha and the Colonel divorced because he was having an affair with a younger woman. To take her mind off things, Agatha was planning on going to the Caribbean, but her friend suggested that she go to Iraq instead. So different, way different vibes. On the Orient Express, which is a real luxury train that I didn't know. I thought she made that up. But she fell in love with the dig site of Ur, saying, quote, the carefulness of lifting pots and objects from the soil filled me with a longing to be an archaeologist myself. We love that for her. She became friends with archaeologists Leonard and Catherine Woolley, as well as their assistant, Max Malawan. Malawin? Malawin? Do we know? You pronounced it correctly. Okay. Agatha and Max fell in love, and when Agatha's daughter, Rosalind, became sick, Max went back to England with her. 
They were married in 1930, and Agatha started going on digs with him in Iraq and Syria, especially at Mesopotamian sites like Ur. Of being married to an archaeologist, this is my favorite quote of Agatha Christie's ever in the whole world. Like, it's just so good. Agatha once said, quote, an archaeologist is the best husband any woman can have. The older she gets, the more interested he is in her, which is like excellent, perfect when you add in the context of how her first marriage ended. It's just so funny. Also, when when Agatha and Max got married, Agatha was 40 and Max was 27. (laughs) Yeah, we love to see it. She liked field work so much because it gave her a break from the pressure she felt in England. She was a very famous author and had a very public divorce. So the dig season was like a break from all of that and she could just vibe. Many of her novels were inspired by and even based on archaeology and take place in the countries where she was digging. One of them features the death of an archaeologist's wife, who it is widely believed is supposed to represent the co-director of the dig's wife, whom Agatha did not like. I don't know if that's actually true. I just heard that in class once. So who knows? And Agatha didn't just sit around and write while her husband dug, unlike Lexi would. She was down in the ditches with him, often taking pictures and cataloging finds, which are honestly some of the most important aspects of archaeology because of how inherently destructive archaeology is. Don't remember if we've said this before, but once something is out of the ground, you cannot put it back exactly the same way. So taking pictures while it's in the ground is crucial. Uh, Agatha actually used her big novel bucks to fund the dig, so she really was the archaeology sugar mama that we dream of, unless that is not a universal archaeologist experience. That might just be me. (laughs) She was knighted in 1971 when she officially became Dame Agatha Christie and retired from public life in 1974 and died on January 12, 1976. A movie adaptation of Death on the Nile, one of her archaeology-inspired novels, was released last month and looks intriguing based on the trailer. Gal Gadot is always an interesting choice, but it will probably be awful. The trailer will be on our YouTube playlist. You can find this podcast on Twitter, TikTok, and Instagram at Lady History Pod. Our show notes and a transcript of this episode will be on LadyHistoryPod.com. If you like the show, leave us a review or follow us on Patreon. And if you don't like the show, keep it to yourself. Our logo is by Alexia Ibarra. You can find her on Instagram at girlbump.productions. Our theme music is by me, GarageBand, and Amelia Earhart. Lexi is doing the editing. You will not see us and we will not see you, but you will hear us next time on Lady History. on Lady History, we're doing the ooky spooky mysteries. We're telling stories of authors, mystery authors. That's the fucking word. Women Um, who wrote mysteries and thrillers. 
You know what? Agatha Christie part two. It's basically Agatha Christie part two. Come back next week and figure it out for yourselves. Maybe I will figure out. Murder in the Lady History Library. Thank you. Yep. Yep. Happy Women's History Month.